intriguing online magazines that I have seen is the online magazine called Failure. It was formed, created in the year 2000, and it's devoted to all things failure. For instance, they they will have every day featured on the website, um, this day in history, and then they will share some remarkable, famous failure. For instance, today, in 1633, Galileo was convicted of heresy because he claimed that the earth revolved around the sun. So he was convicted of heresy as a result. Uh, The most popular article on that website right now is an article called The Goats of West Point. And it's an article about all the famous men who finished last in their class at West Point. Uh, General George Custer, as Phil would know, uh, finished last in his class. And you might not know this one, George Pickett of the famous Pickett's Charge finished last in his class as well. One article that I found very interesting on that website is an article called The Fail Room, L-F-A-I-L, The Fail Room. What is it about? Well, at uh, Bryant-Denny Stadium in Tuscaloosa, where the University of Alabama plays, the visiting locker room is called The Fail Room. Uh, And it was in honor of a man named James Fail, who was basically the, the money behind that locker room. And so it's now called the fail room. And they say it has a psychological effect for the visiting team. When they go into that locker room every week and they see the fail room there. And they they usually fail. Let's be honest. Uh, Indeed, I I encourage you to look that website up. It's very fascinating. They, They update it constantly and it's daily updated for that matter. It's quite an entertaining website. But you know, there's nothing entertaining, okay, about failing spiritually. In fact, uh, it's the greatest failure you can ever experience. And Jonah, as we've seen, has failed spiritually. He's failed as a prophet, and he has failed as a man of God. This isn't a pagan. Uh, this isn't a false convert. Jonah is a believer, okay, and he has failed miserably. And of course, God knew that he would, right? God knew that Jonah would fail miserably. Uh, All God had to do was to give him a command. And by giving him that command, it exposed Jonah's heart. That's what the word does. It it penetrates, okay? It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It discerns the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The, the Word of God exposes, okay, um, our self-righteousness. It exposes our sin. And here's what's important about having our sin exposed. It's not so that God can shame us. It's for this reason alone. That which cannot be known can't be mourned over, okay? So God has to show us our sin so that it can be known. And that which is known can then be grieved over. And that which is grieved over, and that alone, can only be confessed. And that which cannot be known or or grieved over will not be confessed. But that which is known and grieved over will be confessed. And that which is confessed will be repented of. Okay, And that's why it's so important that God is ever showing us our sin. Now, He uses the Word to do that. He uses people. He will bring people into your life that will kind of serve as a file, all right, to expose indwelling sin. No person can make you sin, but God will use people in your life to expose the sin that's already there. He'll use difficult providences, difficult circumstances. He'll use pressure. All of these different things He uses to expose the sin so that as believers, we grieve over it. And when we grieve over it, guess what happens? We take it seriously. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus said. Well, that's where Jonah is. And God has allowed Jonah to choose his own path 
just long enough to feel the misery of it, so he will grieve over it. And we saw last time in Jonah 2, that great confession. Uh, Jonah has grieved over his sin, and we saw this great psalm where Jonah confesses his sin, he confesses the consequences of his sin, and the great mercy and compassion, saving grace of God. And this mercy demonstrates itself in restoring Jonah to his original mission. And that's where we are, and we pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. And you could just kind of, if you wanted to take notes here, you could say, verses 1 to 4, the Lord of second chances. The Lord of second chances. Look with me in verse 1. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, just as a side note here, this is the mark of a prophet. It's the mark of a man called of God. You see, uh, in some churches, the pulpit drives the man to the word. That's backwards. The way it should be is the word drives the man to the pulpit. Okay? And that's what's happened. The word came to Jonah. This is a common phrase you see uh, with the prophets. You see it in John the Baptist in Luke. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. There's some of us that may be sitting in here tonight only because the word came to us a second time. Grace and mercy abounds. Now, what does this sound like? The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. What does that sound like? Well, it sounds like the, the way the first half of this book began. This is, begins the second half of the book. How did the first half of the book begin? Look in chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Uh, for those of you that have played golf, this almost sounds like Jonah's been given a mulligan. You know what a mulligan is? You hit that bad shot and the mulligan allows you to hit that shot anew as if nothing has happened. It's as if God has forgiven Jonah's sin and cast it into the depths of the sea. In fact, if you look over just one book, the next book, look in Micah chapter 7. This is a, a, a verse you ought to memorize. It's so beautiful. Micah's writing the same time Jonah is, okay? They are ministering in the same, uh, the same century, which would have been in the 800s B.C. And notice, first of all, in verse, chapter 7, verse 18, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. By the way, who celebrates that? Those who recognize their iniquity. Those who hate their iniquity. That, that, those are the only ones who celebrate something that true or something of that nature about God. Passing over transgression. But here's the verse I want you to see, verse 19. And it makes you wonder if he was meditating on Jonah's narrative. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. It really sounds like what has happened with Jonah. God has responded to Jonah's great sin with great mercy. But Jonah also understands something we need to understand. God's mercy isn't seen in just that he responds to our repentance. He does that. God's mercy is seen in that it leads us to repentance. Our repentance is a gift of God's mercy and grace. And so, yes, the mercy is seen in that he responds to repentance. But the mercy is seen perhaps even more fully and clearly in that it leads us to repentance. In fact, look in chapter 2, verse 9 once again. The very last verse, or the last line of Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is not God responding to Jonah's repentance. It's that, but it's more. Salvation is God saving Jonah uh, and bringing about the repentance. And we saw that repentance is brought about by God's sovereignty over everything, where he hurls wind and, and uh, appoints fish, okay, 
all of that was a part of the process leading to Jonah's salvation, albeit a physical salvation, but a picture of spiritual salvation as well. What that tells us is that Jonah has learned that if he didn't deserve salvation, and he certainly didn't, And again, we're talking about salvation in the physical sense. He was already a believer. But if Jonah didn't deserve salvation and God gave it to him anyway, that's Jonah 2.9, then it's God's prerogative if he wants to save the Ninevites. That's something that Jonah just could not process until he's been broken. Now, we're going to see next week that he's... He still has some sanctification issues that need to take place in his life. But at least he is at that place. When God first came to Jonah, there was flat out rebellion. He wanted to flee from the presence of God. That is like Cain seeking to flee from the presence of God. And there was a complete dismissal to what God said. And it's only because of God's holy, loving anger that Jonah has been brought back. To where he is. Remember, the anger of God is our only hope. It's it's a holy anger. It's a righteous anger. It's a good anger. It's not capricious. Capricious, like when your children are getting on your nerves and you just kind of spout off because you want quiet, peace, and quiet. Um, it is the kind of anger that has uh, the object of the anger um, in view. That is, you are seeking the good and the, the restoration of the one in whom you are angry. God has been angry with Jonah, and it's brought about this desired outcome. Um, and we see this throughout Scripture. I mean, we see God's anger and His restorative grace throughout Scripture. We saw it with Abraham countless times. We see it with Moses. You know, Moses killed a man. You know? I mean, Moses was a murderer. And he ends up being the great, great leader in Israel's history. We saw it with Peter, didn't we? Three times. And I tell you, one of the real common themes I see as a pastor are people who come to me whose past is really messed up. Okay? And they hear about the gospel, they hear about grace, they hear about mercy, but they believe they're the exception. All right? And they're not. That's the glory of grace and mercy. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. The greatest sins in history have been committed by the people we read about in Scripture. And God brought forgiveness and even restoration to their original mission. Okay? And that is the beauty and the scandal of grace. As I've cited C.S. Lewis before, but I think it holds true here. God's love is not wearied by our sins. Now, again, the math of the mind says, well, that just gives me a ticket. If I hear that, I can just go off and, and do as I please. No. If that's actually captured you, you won't do. Um, well, you will do as you please, but you have a different kind of principle in your heart. You now desire to please the one who has been so good to you, okay? And he says, um, God's love is not weird by our sins or our indifference. And therefore, it is quite relentless in its determination that we shall be cured of those sins. Whatever cost to us, whatever cost to him. God is pursuing each one of us. And part of that pursuit involves exposing the sin so that you will mourn over it. All right? So how does he expose the sin? Again, he doesn't expose it through comfortable situations. He exposes it through difficulties. He, he, He brings people into your life, circumstances into your life. And all of that uncomfortable, difficult pain is actually God's unrelenting grace. Okay? And that's where Jonah has been. Of course, the story here is certainly bigger than just the principles we can draw from Jonah's life. We always have to keep at the forefront here that Jonah is a type. He's a signpost. He's pointing us to someone greater. 
We see this in Matthew 12. We see this in Luke 11. That is the salvation of one Hebrew who has been judged and raised from Sheol, all right, is going to produce the salvation of many sinful Ninevites. That is intentional. This is what Sinclair Ferguson calls the Jonah principle. God aims to bring life out of death. You see this time and time again in the scriptures. Well, look at me in verse 2. It says, God says, arise, go to Nineveh. Again, verse 2 of chapter 1. Arise, go to Nineveh. And he says, that great city and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and fled. No, he went. He went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. The first time Jonah rose to flee, verse 3 of chapter 1, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, which was 2,000 miles away. This time he arose to obey. Now, what's happened? Sanctification. But again, we're going to see next week that you never graduate from sanctification school, do you? Just when you think you have victory, God says, you're not as far along spiritually as you think you are. We'll see that next week. Now, keep in mind, has God lowered the bar for Jonah? Has he said, okay, Jonah, I know what I was calling you to do was a bit difficult, all right? So I'm going to bend. I'm going to meet you in the middle. Let's just compromise, okay? All right, so let's meet in the middle and let's kind of negotiate um, what I'm going to have you do next. Because obviously, my call on your life to go to Nineveh was too difficult and dangerous. Is that what happened? No. No, God... Has not bended. Um, something has been bent though. God, uh, Jonah's will. Jonah's will is that which has been bent. God does not in any way change his mind in that regard. Alright? If he has a mission for you, he will pursue you until you submit to you cry, uncle. Alright? And so what's happened is Jonah's Affections have been changed through brokenness. He has grown in his love for God's mercy and grace and compassion. He's more fit to carry out the original mission. Now, when you consider that God could have commissioned someone more spiritually mature than Jonah to go to Nineveh, do you think he could have? Do you think he could have found someone who was a little more mature than Jonah? I think so. I don't think God said, okay, he's the best we have. Let's just go with him. No, I I don't think that. I believe that he intended for Jonah to carry out this task because he's as concerned with Jonah's spiritual state as he is the Ninevites. And so he kills two birds with one stone. He calls Jonah to this task recognizing that Jonah has to be broken before he can carry out the task. And in so doing, he's going to end up uh, saving the Ninevites as well. And that reminds us, God is more concerned about our spiritual health than he is the assignment that he has for us. That's a very important thing to understand. He's more concerned about our spiritual health than he is the spiritual work he's called us to do. He doesn't need any of us. He absolutely does not need any of us. If we remain silent, he can raise up a rock, Jesus said. That is, he knew Jonah would initially flee, but he was interested in Jonah as much as he was in the Ninevites. Now, originally, Jonah had disobeyed God's command... Because he did not think the Ninevites were worthy of God's grace. Which is kind of like saying a tall midget. Who is worthy of grace? No one's worthy of grace. There's no, there's no people that are more worthy of grace than any other people. 
Grace is grace. It's undeserved. It's unmerited favor. But that's where he, the way he thought. But what's happened, and again, that's why we continue to have to preach the gospel even to the believer, is because until we recognize um, forgiving, saving, unwarranted grace, until that melts our hearts, okay, there's going to be a veneer of self-righteousness among religious people. And that's where Jonah has been, but now his heart is more pliable. In fact, his melted heart has been emboldened. Now, Dennis, you're, you're about to head to, to Africa, and there is a degree of trepidation in light of your health. Um, there would be some of that even if you were a picture of health, right? But here's what's happened. And it's happened with everyone who's done something like this. Something greater has taken over in your heart. Um, you, you, you have this fear. We are frail. We are finite and frail and fallible. We're easily discouraged. Uh, we're easily, um, you know, put off by things. But there is, there's a greater principle at work in your life. Your love for God is more intense than your fear about going. And that's why you're going. Okay? And Jonah... He's not fully sanctified. We're going to see that next week very clearly. But something has taken place in his heart, okay? He is now fit at least for this aspect of the mission. And it's going to require this holy boldness because if you know anything about the Assyrians, you know that these guys were violent. In fact, look in chapter 10 of Genesis. Let's review Something we looked at a few years ago, back when Bill was a young man, Bill Drury. Um, in Genesis chapter 10, you've got uh, the origins of Nineveh, or the Assyrians. And look with me uh, in chapter 10, verse 8. Cush. Now, who's Cush? Cush is the son of Ham. All right? Now, who is Ham? The, the son of Noah. That's right. So Cush is the grandson of Noah. Now notice, it says, Cush father Nimrod. Don't ever, don't ever name your children Nimrod. Right. <laughs> um, so Nimrod is the great-grandson of Noah. Look at this. It said, he fathered Nimrod. He, that is Nimrod, was the first on earth... To be a mighty man. What is a mighty man? It's a warrior. Okay? You're going to see that three times in that passage. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, uh, they tell us that this is not someone who's living their life coram deo before the face of God. This is someone who is living in opposition to God. Okay? He's a mighty man against God. He is a prideful, resistant man. Now, notice it says... Therefore, it is said that like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. What does that tell us? He is likely the instigator of the Babel tower crisis. Nimrod was behind it. The great-grandson of Noah. Then it says... Beginning of the kingdom... Of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kauna, and the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. So, think about this. What a legacy. This guy is behind Assyria and Babel. That's a bad legacy. All right? Two of the most notorious people groups... In the history of the world. It, and it's fair to say that there is no uh, people group more notorious, more known for their violence than the Assyrians. You know, about a, just a few decades before Jonah went on the scene, um, one of their most famous kings, his name was Asher Nasserpal II. All right? And if I mispronounce his name, there's no way you can prove it. So that's, that works out well. In describing one of his 
um, campaigns. This is an example of a king in, the, in Assyria, all right? This is the kind of people that Jonah is going to. Listen to what he said. He said, I caused great slaughter. I destroyed, I demolished, I burned. I took their warriors prisoner and impaled them on stakes before their cities. And he reported one battle where he killed 10,000 or 3,000 and many others were taken prisoner. He says, many of the captives I burned in a fire, burned them alive, taking pride in it. Many I took alive. From some I cut off their hands to the wrist. From others I cut off their noses, their ears, and their fingers. I put out the eyes of many of the soldiers. I burnt their young men and women to death. And then he took some of the royal officials of the various countries that they would conquer and he would skin them. I'm not going to give you what he did with the skins. But it's, you have to just be not only violent, but creative. All right? This is the kind of people that Jonah was being called to. I guess the best contemporary equivalent would be for, you know, all the unrest right now in the Middle East, Iraq, all right, for instance, be one of us going and standing before, you know, the Taliban and all these other different, you know, terrorist groups and calling them to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's essentially the calling that Jonah had on his life. And so we're hard on Jonah in the safety of this room. But as I said this morning, when we open up the Bible, it's a mirror for us. When we see Jonah, we see ourselves. Okay? So there's more than just racism or prejudice and self-righteousness. There, there's obviously going to be some fear here. But now Jonah has been so captured by mercy that he is provoked, he's emboldened to do what he was originally called to do. This is just a summation, a capsule of what he was called to do. I think there was probably more to it than that. Um, and I'll give my reason in just a moment. But then it goes on and says, verse 5, The people of Nineveh believed God. I mean, we can talk about the miracles of a fish, the miracles of God hurling wind and appointing worms, the greatest miracle in Jonah is saving sinners. That, that, that's, that's the greatest miracle. I can tell you that. As someone who's evangelized lost people, someone who preaches every week, the greatest miracle is when someone is melted by grace and mercy. Okay? They believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation, published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily, to God, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, I want you to note that first phrase there in verse 5. They believed God. But who was the one speaking? 
Jonah was the one speaking. This is one of these times that we see what the Bible says about itself. Okay? To believe the word of a prophet is to believe God. And so when we talk about the doctrine of Scripture, where do we derive our doctrine from Scripture? We derive it from Scripture. You say, well, that's circular reasoning. And anytime you're dealing with ultimate principles, everyone has to, in some sense, be guilty of circular reasoning. Because if we take every other doctrine from Scripture, like the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of sin, then we must take our doctrine of Scripture from the Scripture as well. Jonah speaks the word of the prophet, and they believed God. So to believe the word of the prophet is to believe God. Okay? And so that's the first thing we see here. Keep in mind as well, the fact that they have the privilege of hearing the word of God from this prophet preached and taught. And the very fact that Jonah was sent to such an evil place reminds us that God's capacity to forgive sinners is greater than our capacity to sin. There, there has never been perhaps a more evil group in all of history than the ones that Jonah was called to preach to. And there's never been a greater awakening, a greater revival than what we see here in Jonah chapter 3. Uh, we, our country's had great revivals. You, you have that famous revival, the Northampton uh, revival with Jonathan Edwards in 1934 and 1935. It kind of was the... Uh, you know, the early uh, expressions of what you would see in the first great awakening in the 1740s. And then you have the second great awakening in the uh, 1800s. We've had revivals. Uh, and, uh, and when we talk about a revival, we're just talking about what happens to an individual, but on a macro scale. All right. If you are revived spiritually, that's a revival at a micro level. But we're talking about a macro kind of revival here. Or better said, awakening. All right? And that's what you have here. These people believed God. And so we see an awakening is first grounded in belief and a new trust in the Word of God. Um, but I think what you have here in this passage uh, are the perennial effects of what happens when God's Word permeates the heart of sinners by the very Spirit of God. Now, the first thing the text doesn't tell us, but we know from New Testament, there has to be illumination. If that's a new word for you, when you begin to see things in the Bible that you've never seen before, and you begin to believe things about God that you've never believed before, that's the work of illumination. It's not because you're just spiritually superior to everyone else, okay? That is the work of the Spirit. And so, as Paul describes it, when there is an open statement of the truth, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul uses that language, the open statement of the truth. We see it with Jonah. There was an open statement of the truth. Uh, these people who woke up uh, business as usual that morning, Okay, And their minds are blinded by the God of this age. All of a sudden, new light. Light sheds and, and breaks the darkness. And God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, shines in their hearts to give them the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. And so you have this illumination. And they saw that they stood before God. Or rather said, God stood before them and they were accountable to Him. And I don't know who said this, but I, I wish I could find the one who made this statement. I've, I've, I've had it for some time, but I don't know the source behind it. I'm not profound enough to have said this. But the truth will make you free, but first it must make you miserable. Isn't that a good statement? The truth will make you free, but first it will make you miserable. 
Why? Because you're not born into truth and you don't live truth and believe truth. Uh, the truth confronts you in your rebellion. Okay? It, it, it confronts you in your sin. And that truth confronts you because God is going to set you free. But it first must make you miserable. And so out of that illumination comes what we know as repentance. Now let me give you the best definition of repentance. And I can say this because I, it's not my definition. Uh, it is the definition that comes out of the Baptist Catechism. It is a comprehensive definition of repentance. I encourage you to memorize it. Repentance is a work of God's free grace whereby the sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. So he, he now has this new sense of sin, but apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred over his sin. Turn from it to God, okay, with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. That's repentance. Let me say it again. So it's a work of God's free grace whereby the sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred over his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. Now, this definition has three aspects to it. Repentance involves contrition. So now through illumination, the sinner sees his sin or her sin in light of a holy God. All right? And there is godly sorrow worked in the person. We've talked about the difference between contrition and attrition. Attrition is that you're just concerned the consequences. You're, you're concerned you're going to be busted. All right? That's attrition. That's worldly sorrow. Judas had that. We've had that. <laughs> Contrition is that you, are, you have a new grief because it is offensive to God. All right? So there's contrition. We see this in this passage. Look at the second part of verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. Look in verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Fasting here is a public expression of penitence. And what's interesting is that even the animals were required to fast. Why do you think that's the case? I think it was to display the exhaustive repentance that's come upon that place. And think about it. If you've ever had a, a pet, if that pet goes without food or water, what does that pet begin to do? It begins to bark, whine, meow, and cry. Imagine a, a city filled with animals that have not drank anything and haven't eaten anything. What will you hear? You're going to hear a lot of suffering. That's what you're going to hear. Which would have been emblematic of their contrition before God. Okay? And so you've got contrition and then you've got confession as seen by the sackcloth uh, and, and their fasting. And then you've got change. Um, so contrition, confession, and change, which is repentance and faith. Let's talk about that, uh, that change. Faith and repentance is the two sides of the salvation coin. Uh, you could say that repentance and faith is the faucet that shalom flows through. Now, what is shalom? That's Hebrew word for peace, well-being, the way God created things to be. When Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? The first thing that is lost is shalom. The reason you lack shalom in your heart is because all is not well. The reason I have a lack of shalom in my heart is because things are not the way they're supposed to be. Faith and repentance is the faucet, the conduit by which shalom flows. 
The only way to fix your lack of shalom is through repentance and faith. And so you see this repentance, but you also uh, see this faith. Uh, And this faith began with believing God. Now, I don't know what Jonah fully said. All we're given here is that he cried yet 40 days um, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I think that is the message in a, in a nutshell. But very likely, he preached as well their, the reason why they needed to repent. Very likely, he spoke about the law of God. Jonah was a man who, who would have had the, the, what we know as the Ten Commandments as a very vital part of his message. So he probably spoke about the law of God. He probably spoke about the holiness of God. And if this is true conversion, there has to be a gospel. You don't want to save without the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And it's still debated what Old Testament saints believed about the gospel. They don't know and believe what we believe in the, in the fullest sense. They believe the same message, we just have more details. It's kind of like an acorn that kind of grows to be a great tree. One thing we do know, they weren't saved in a different way than we are saved. They were saved through the coming Messiah. Now, the way many people believe it is that they believed and trusted in the types. We've talked about these types, these events, these ceremonies, uh, these institutions that point kind of like a, a, a finger, an index finger to something greater. All right? And so they would have seen the sacrificial system. And they would have seen, ah, this points to one who will come, who will offer the, the ultimate sacrifice. You see that in Genesis 22 when Isaac is laid up on the stake and he says, Father, where's the lamb? God will provide himself the lamb. Okay? So there's this idea even then, and you can take it even as far back as Genesis 3.15, where you have the seed of the woman who will, cre- uh, uh, who will crush the seed of the serpent. But notice, the seed of the serpent will bruise his heel. And so, even as far back as Genesis 3.15, we recognize that the Messiah, the seed of the woman, is going to experience some kind of suffering. And even Adam and Eve are clothed in animal skins that God provides. And so, when you put all of that stuff together, I think they probably believed uh, more than we give them credit for. Isaiah speaks about the suffering servant. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was pierced for our transgressions and the punishment uh, that brought us peace was uh, rendered to him. Um, It's hard to say. But one thing we do know in Luke chapter 11, verse 30, here's what Jesus said. Jonah was a sign to the people of Nineveh. That was, his, that was his exact words in Luke 11. Which means that when Jonah uh, experienced his judgment, so to speak, in the belly of the fish and was vomited up, that pointed a sign, a signpost. That's essentially what that is saying. That was pointing the Ninevites to something greater. One who would come, experience some form of judgment and be raised up out of that Sheol for their salvation. I don't want to say more than that's there. But one thing I do believe, I believe that this is true conversion, and I think that what you have in, these, in this short little sermon is just a, a brief capsule of all that was said. But it's hard to be dogmatic on that. One thing we do know is that there is great repentance. In fact, uh, in, in Matthew's account, when Jesus is, is discussing uh, the sign uh, of Jonah, uh, it's very interesting what he says uh, when he is talking about how Jonah's experience pointed uh, them to someone greater. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, So will the Son of Man be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented. 
So this is true repentance. This isn't some kind of pseudo-repentance. I read a book on Jonah before I started my study, and the guy argues that it wasn't true repentance. Uh, I, I don't buy that. I think this is true repentance. It says, They repented of the, at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And in light of um, like passages like Jeremiah chapter 18, we see that one of the purposes of God sending uh, prophets to these na- nations was for that very reason. Listen to chapter 18 of Jeremiah. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. And so what you have here is true, full-scale, converting repentance. All right? And remember to whom Jonah is writing. Who is Jonah writing to? Well, I believe Jonah's writing. I believe it's actually the prophet writing. A man who's brought to the end of himself and who's getting very vulnerable and I think he is writing to unrepentant Israel. He's also writing to unrepentant Israel's kings. Now, when is Israel going to be judged? They're going to be judged in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians, all right? And so he is writing probably a century before all of this goes down. And he is using... These evil Ninevites as a foil against Israel and their kings. Now, what is a foil? Here's a definition from the American Heritage Dictionary. A foil is one that stands in contrast to and emphasizes the distinctive characteristics of another. So you have these evil people who are responding to the word of the prophet. And then you've got the covenant people, the people of Israel, who are absolutely cold and indifferent to the things of God. And so the Ninevites are a foil to indict Israel for their lack of repentance. And if that's the case, it's a foil for us as well. As we hear this book and we're confronted with it, we have to ask ourselves the questions, what is God calling me to repent of? All right? Where am I cold to his word, his gospel? Okay? What areas of my life do I need to submit to him? All right? Do I see Jonah in my life? Do I see the Israelites in my life? Because if these great sinners can respond, how much more so should we, the covenant people of God? Well, notice how this chapter ends. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, How they turned from their evil. God relented. The King James says repented. I don't like that verb. I don't know the way that's translated. But God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Uh, That word repented has led some people to question God's omniscience. Now what is omniscience? It means that God knows everything, right? Well, if God repents, that means he didn't know what they were going to do. And once they did it, he repented. So there are people today who believe that God does not know the future. They're called open theists. The the future is open because God doesn't know what you're going to do. He doesn't know what you're going to do when you get home tonight. He has an idea based on your prior activity. But he doesn't really know, okay? So some have questioned his omniscience. Others have questioned what we call the immutability of God, the, the uh, the fact that he is, God is unchanging in his character. But keep in mind, God accommodates. And this is a very important word. He accommodates his word uh, to our mode of understanding. <clears throat> it's like a, um, when you speak to your, your son, uh, you probably speak differently to him than you speak to an adult, don't you? Um, if you spoke to an adult, the way you speak to your son, they would look at you uh, probably a little weirdly, okay? God comes to us as sons and daughters, and he accommodates, all right, his mind and his thoughts to meet us where we are. 
And so there are places in the scripture where it says that uh, we're inscribed in the palms of his hands. Guess what? God doesn't have hands. All right. Uh, There are other places in scripture where it speaks about the ears of the Lord. God doesn't have ears. And so here he's ascribing human reasoning to God. But it's not God who has changed in verse 10. It's the Ninevites that have changed. God is responding to a new reality. That new reality is repentance. I love what Hugh Martin in the 19th century said. We're going to close it here. It was wicked, violent, unrighteous, atheistic, proud, and luxurious Nineveh, which God had threatened to destroy. A city sitting in sackcloth and ashes, humbled in the depths of self-abasement, and appealing as lowly suppliance to his commiseration. A Nineveh like that? That Nineveh, he had never threatened. Got that? That Nineveh, he visited not with ruin, but mercy and grace. And of course, we need to understand why he did that uh, and how he can do that. And it's going to come through the cross. And we close. Let me just give you 30 seconds here from Romans um, chapter 3. A passage that Robert has looked at on Wednesday nights. I'm sure, I'm sure he beat this one to death. Because this is one of the glorious passages in the Bible. For all of sin falls short of the glory of God. Verse 23. Um... And are justified by His grace as a, uh, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God uh, put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to, God, to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Okay? That doesn't mean that He swept the former sins under the rug. It's just that all the former sins, okay... We're going to be accounted for and judged in the cross. And so the the Old Testament saints and believers look forward to the one who would come, who would take their sins in full. Okay? And so that's, in other words, there's a, let me give you a fancy term, a proleptic participation in the benefits of Christ. That's what the Ninevites experienced. Okay? And I believe that's what Jonah preached. And that's the message to us. Let's pray.